Good morning, Harrison Bridge. I hope you guys are having a great morning, even though it's pouring down rain outside. I told someone earlier I had no idea it was going to rain. That tells you how in tune I am with the weather. I thought we were going to have a sunny day, but here we are. But hey, it is an amazing Sunday from my end because even as great as the other week was where we got to announce finally after sitting on it for a couple months there that we were heading this way that now it's actually happening because it felt like after the announcement I had to sit on my hands for like two weeks, three weeks and just wait. And so I'm so thankful that this time it is here and that we get to open the word together regularly. I cannot tell you how excited I have been, my family has been, and we look forward to getting to know you guys this morning or tonight or in the weeks to come. We'd love to just uh, stop for a few minutes and just hear about who you are and how the Lord's working in your life and how we can partner with you to continue that there, uh, that walk with Jesus. And also, uh, just from, from my standpoint, uh, I am so looking forward to helping and walking with you guys over the next few weeks, months, and years, because I firmly believe not only are the best days of Upstate Church ahead of us, but the, uh, the best days of Upstate Church, Harrison Bridge, are ahead of us as well. And so looking forward to that. Uh, as Pat said, y'all have an opportunity to meet my better half, the far better conversationalist, and my wife uh, than I am. I'll talk to you, but she really enjoys talking to you. And then you'll get a chance to meet my daughter, Anna Grace, who's hanging out in the kids' ministry ministry area there. Uh, just a real quick story happened last week, and as I was preparing for the sermon, I thought, my goodness, that fits perfectly with what we're going to be talking about today. Is We normally do at night, we'll read her a couple of books, and then we'll open up God's Word with her, a little kid's Bible. But as we've approached Easter, we kind of switched it out for different books that explain what Easter is, what it's about. One of the books is a phenomenal book. It's called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. If you don't have it and you have a young child, highly recommend it. It gives the gospel on a level they really begin to understand. There's this phrase in the book that says the people could not go to God. They could not access God. They could not go in. They could not be in a right relationship with God. And it says this phrase over and over again. And as it does this, I'm sorry, no, well, there we go. As it does this, uh, we, we get to the cross and we get to the empty tomb. And we explain her to Anna Grace, hey, here's Easter, here's what it's about. And we inevitably started talking about heaven. And she stops me in my tracks with this one question last week. She says, Daddy, are you going to heaven? And I'm like, man, like, sure, yes. But then also at the same time, before you're putting me on the spot, they kind of stopped me. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, Daddy's going to heaven. And then she looked at Melody. She said, Mom, are you going to heaven? She says, yeah. And then she says, well, I want to go to heaven. I'm like, well, this is a great thing, right? This is a really noble thing for you to want to go to heaven. And then she proceeds to uh, uh, tell us a few more things that um, she thinks that God knows her really well because he gives her the toys that she wants and that she hopes toys are in heaven. And I said, amen, me too, girl. But here's the thing. She said something else in that conversation that really made me think, and it seems so innocent. But she said, I want to go to heaven in two weeks. And I was like, okay, okay, like I want to go to heaven too, and I want to go soon. But man, two weeks—that's that's really soon. And here's what made me a little uncomfortable with that: unless Jesus returns for me to get to heaven, for Melody to get to heaven, and if my daughter trusts in Jesus one day, for her to get to heaven means that we'll die, and that makes us really uncomfortable. 
You see, as we focus in on this series called Back to Life, and we focus in on resurrections, we heard about the Valley of Dry Bones being resurrected last week with Ezekiel. Today, we'll hear about the Shunammite's son being physically resurrected. And as we look towards Easter and we see Jesus' resurrection, the ultimate resurrection, we are told again and again about all of these resurrections, which we should be told about. But before each of these resurrections, a death has taken place. A death has occurred. And that's the part we don't really like to focus on. Why? Because it's a daunting foe in our lives. It's a daunting opponent. Here's what we mean by that. It's something, if we're honest with ourselves, we cannot overcome. Every single one of us knows that. That there is a day, unless Jesus comes back, that I will die. I will close my eyes for the last time. And unless something changes on, on the outside, inwardly, I, I can't fix that. I can't deal with that. And so as a culture, especially a Western culture, we go out of our way to avoid death or any talk of death. We spend thousands upon thousands of dollars individually to stay healthy and to uh, remind ourselves that we have so many other things to focus on. Or to dress ourselves up so that we can disguise our bodies that are decaying with each waking morning. It's an uncomfortable subject. And so the question becomes... If there's no permanent solution within ourselves, how do we deal with this? What do we do? And this whole series has been dealing with the answer to that. Not only how we overcome physical death, but really the bigger enemy, which is spiritual death, which is found in the answer above the name above all names, which is Jesus. And so this morning, we take a closer look at a physical resurrection that will point to the power of God in terms of, yes, he has the power to physically resurrect us, but he also has the power to spiritually resurrect us from the spiritual death that is hanging over us as well. If you've got a Bible, we'll be flipping to 2 Kings chapter 4 is where we'll be hanging out. To give you a little bit of backdrop as we enter into the second week of our Back to Life series, we're going to be introduced to a prophet named Elisha. Now, Elisha has been the understudy of a prophet called Elijah, one of the bigger prophets of the Old Testament. What we're talking about Elijah is he received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And what that means is simply this, is that he was going to walk in the same type of ministry of Elijah and do even more. And what we find up until this point in 2 Kings, he has checked off a lot of boxes that Elijah checked. But he has not resurrected someone from the dead, which Elijah did. And this is what we'll find here in 2 Kings 4. Now, the surrounding context to Elijah resurrecting someone from the dead is that up until now, we've been dealing with a narrative that is solely focused on national implications, national problems, national conflicts. You can flip back a chapter earlier and find that Elijah is ministering and leading and helping out with the Moabite war. And so we, we get this grand scheme and this grand narrative of how God is moving at this time. But yet, chapter 4 is different. It is where the narrative abruptly stops and focuses in on a much smaller scale, on the individual. And here's why it's so necessary to point that out, because a lot of times, even when things aren't going wrong, even when things are going right, we tend to think about that from a bigger scale, right? Just think about upstate church. And how God is moving and how God is multiplying and saving people. And we're seeing people come to know him and take the next step of believers' baptism. And new campuses being launched and ministries growing and this and that. Amazing things happening. And what we can find ourselves doing in that moment is saying, man, the Lord is moving in amazing ways on a bigger platform. But I'm not sure if he sees me individually. 
Man, the Lord is really moving in our church, in my small group, but what about me? And that's the temptation we run. Well, if that's you and you come in and you're struggling and you're hurting, or maybe you're facing the topic of death in some way, shape, or form, as we'll talk about a lot today, understand this, 2 Kings 4 is a chapter meant just for you. Why? Because it's God speaking to the individual through the prophetic ministry of Elijah here. It's God showing us all throughout the chapter, not just in our one story we'll focus on, that God cares about the individual and he has compassion for the individual. So if that's you here today, understand this. This chapter should be encouraging you to focus in on God sees you where you are and he's more than prepared to meet you where you are. So we'll be picking up in verse 8 here today. We're going to get a running start and talk about a couple of things before we really get into the meat of the passage. But let's look. Verse 8. One day, Elijah went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continuously, continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. So that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, what then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elijah had said to her. So in our, our running start, before we really get into the focus of our series today, what we need to see is that there's this woman, a Shunammite woman, we're never told her name, never told her husband's name, never told the kid's name. But there's this woman who is living in Shunem, and she sees Elijah come by regularly on his uh, prophetic ministry journey. It, that is, he is regularly in the same place that this family is. And what this woman does is she approaches her husband, and she says, let's build a room for him because I want to show him hospitality. Now, that may seem like a normal thing, but I don't know about you. If I went to my wife, Melody, and I said, hey, there's a prophet that keeps coming by. Let's add a room onto our house. I'm not sure the response I would get there. If she came to me with that, my response would be, hey, there's probably somebody with a bigger house we can send him to, right? I'm not trying to fork that cost out of my pocket. I'm not trying to have the inconvenience of construction, especially this day and age, send him to somebody else. But notice here, the woman says, let's build him a room. There is no ulterior motive here. There is no twisting of the arm of where she says, oh, if I do this, then God will give me this. There's just pure motive here in terms of, I just want to show hospitality. It's obvious she is a woman of faith, even from the get-go here, and her faith drives her to lead her to uncommon hospitality. And so that she builds this room to allow the man of God to do the things of God. That is, she is providing space for God to operate here. And the real quick question for us before we move on is this. 
When's the last time I allowed room in my life for God to move as he pleases? With no promises, no ulterior motives, but just simply said, God, whatever it costs, I want to provide a way for you, room for you, margin for you in my life, for you to move however it is you see fit to move in that area. For me, a lot of times I say it's too inconvenient or it costs too much. But this room is built, the prophet stops by, and long story short, what we find is that this woman is blessed with a son. Now, you'll notice in this conversation, before she's hearing about the son, Elijah asks her, he says, well, what can be done for you? I can put in a good word to the army commander. We can speak to the government. We can alleviate some taxes here. We can get you a better standing. She says, I dwell among my own people. Short story there, I'm good. So Elisha keeps questioning, and he asks the servant, surely there's something. And even though on the surface it seems like she has everything together, Once we peel back those layers, it's clear that even though she has worldly standing and worldly wealth, this woman longs for a son. It was a mark of shame in this culture at this time to be a barren person. Why? Because it meant the family name went in with this woman and her husband. It meant that others might have looked down upon them even if they were well off as they were. And what we find is that individually God will meet this woman where she is. And Elijah says, you will have a son about this time next year. She can scarcely believe it. She says, do not lie to me. This is reminiscent of Abraham and Sarah way back in Genesis where they are older. And God says to them, you will have a child. Sarah literally laughs at that pronouncement. And here what we find is the woman says, you must be lying. But yet both times God meets the individuals where they are. And here's the thing. Anytime we come across this subject in Scripture, I want to be sensitive to this. And here's why. I know in a room, in a church of this size, there are those families that are walking through the same thing. And now let's be clear, this is not a guarantee that God will provide you with a child. But what it is a guarantee of is that God sees you where you are and you're hurting and he meets you where you are. And he will walk with you through that valley. And so if that's you here today, let's just encourage you with this, that God sees you. God knows the hurt, he knows the pain, and he's longing to meet you where you are. And so she is provided with a child hopping back into the narrative. And it leads us to our first point here today. And it's, it's kind of a, a point that's a complete 180 of what we just talked about. Because the woman has just been gifted with life. But as you see on screen, the first point here is faith understands that death cannot be avoided. So what in the world happened? She was just given a child and now we're talking about death. Look with me and see what happens. Verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. That's a quick 180 right there. Now, there is a a length of time that passes in between verse 17 and verse 18. We're told that the boy is now a young man, so he's grown up. The mom's got to enjoy those years. But on this one particular day, the boy's head starts to hurt. He goes out to his dad in the field, complains about his head. The dad takes him to the mother. The mother takes him, and she lays him on her lap, and she watches him die by noon. What a gut-wrenching time. What a gut-wrenching thing to see. It's bad enough to lose a child, but to lose him as he he lays on your lap. I mean, I I can scarcely comprehend that. I, I don't even begin to be able to wrap my mind around that reality there. But see, as as we said from the top from this first point, faith understands death can't be avoided. And we've said here 
that this woman is a woman of faith. You'll notice this all throughout Scripture, ever before the Son is promised, when the Son is promised, and now as the Son is taken away from her, she moves in ways that are directed by her faith. Her faith leads her to action. Now, it's clear this woman is grieving. You'll see that later on. She'll fall at the prophet's feet, and Elijah himself will say, this woman is grieving. Naturally so. If that was me, I don't think I would be able to move. But notice what this woman does. When the son dies, she gets up, she puts him in the room that she has built for the prophet. She shuts the door and she goes out. And we'll hear more of that in just a minute. But understand this. It's her faith here that is understanding the reality of death. So we said a minute ago, we all understand whether we're believers or not that death is coming. That unless Jesus returns, we will all face a day of death. And we understand we cannot avoid that. As we said and asked this question, well, what can be done? How, how can we deal with this? Here's how faith deals with death that cannot be avoided. Faith sees and understands and acknowledges that death is a reality. But for the person of faith, death should not be a paralyzing one. It should not be a paralyzing situation. Should we grieve? Of course, because it's unnatural. This should not be happening. It's a result of our sin and in a broken world. But for the person of faith, we see beyond death and that death is not the end here. We live in a culture of death. We're bombarded with death. I shared with the first couple of services. Just in the past three years alone, I can name three relationships where I've had to walk with a dear friend or person in a small group or even a student where I've had to perform their funeral. And it's bad enough to to see a, a grown person pass away. But as a student pastor, to have to perform a funeral for a student is a whole nother level. And it's just a reminder again and again that death is all around us. Yet faith sees through a culture of death that it is not the end. Why? Because it leads us to point number two, that faith believes that we can live again. It's not the end because we will live again. Even the non-believer in the room, you will live again. It will just be from separ- in separation from Jesus. But faith in Jesus teaches us that we can live again. Look how this woman responds here. Verse 22. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is a Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with your child? And she answered, All is well. And so we find this woman, a woman of faith, understanding that her son was going to die at some point. Now, hopefully, in her mind, probably, as all of our minds as parents, we hope that that's long after we're gone. But as the case is here, it doesn't happen that way. But yet, she still moves in faith, understanding that death is a reality, and yet here we see clearly she believes that he can live again. How do we know that? She refuses to acknowledge that this is the end of the story. Notice verse 22. She says, go get me a servant. Go get me a donkey. I'm going to go talk to my husband real quick. She says to her husband, I've got to go see the man of God. I've got to go see Elisha. And her husband says to her, it's not the new moon. It's, it's not the Sabbath. Why are you going to see him? Now, some commentators say this is him being skeptical. We don't know a lot about him. 
Others say he didn't want to let her go because this was a time of harvest, so he really couldn't afford for her to be taking trips like this. Whatever the purpose of the response there, the husband is saying, why are you going? Notice her response. She says, all is well. When I first read this passage, I thought, okay, this is the modern day equivalent of your spouse telling you it's fine, right? Now, I don't know that personally. You may know that with your spouses out there, but when your spouse says it is fine, it is not fine, right? If you are not yet married or maybe you're engaged and you hear those words, again, I don't know this from experience, but I have heard that you should not rest until you figure out why she is he. She or he has said it's fine. Not call anybody out there. So, but this is not what the woman is saying. Upon further study, here's what she is saying. It's actually a Hebrew word called salom. Not shalom, but salom. S-A-L-O-M. And it means that she is confident that this is not the end. Now, as we'll see, she has no idea what's about to happen. She has no insider information. God has not given her a special word or special revelation. All she understands is that her son is dead. She has to go see the man of God, and nothing is going to deter her from that. Why? Because her faith is saying she thinks her son can live again. Much like, again, the story of Abraham and his son. As God commands him to sacrifice his son in Genesis 22 on the mountain, Abraham says before they go up the mountain that we will return. Now, God has just told him to kill his son. But Abraham says, we will return. If you would have asked him how, he would not have understood how. But he had faith that he would live again. This woman is resolute. This this woman is also urgent. Notice here, she says to her servant, do not slacken the pace. And so she heads straight away to Mount Carmel. No detours, no deviations from the trip. And Elijah sees her and he sends his servant. And he asks three questions. How is it with you, your husband, and your child? And he gets the same response that the husband did. You hear that confidence? All is well. She is confident that this is not the end of the story. It leads us to the third point that really illustrates how she could believe in such a a way that it was not the end of the story. I mean, the third point is faith knows how we can live again. Now, we know how this plays out. We know the other side of the story. We're about to read the end of the story. But in this moment, this woman has no idea how this is going to shake out. She just simply believes that if she sees the man of God upon whom the presence of God rests, that it will be figured out, however God wants to handle that. So look with me, verse 27. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. When Elijah came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched him upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. 
So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. We see here this woman's faith shows us how her son will live again. Faith knows how we can live again. She believed it. She might not have known the details, but she knew that it was a possibility with God that her son could live again. She knew that it might not be the end of the story, and she was going to seek out the answer until it was told to her that the story had ended. So she shows up at Mount Carmel, and she falls at the feet of the prophet. This was a remarkable break in decorum. This was not the etiquette of the time. This was a no-no from a cultural standard. This is why the servant of God pushes her away or seeks to push her away. Elisha stops her, and here's why. He sees, sees a grieving mother. As we said earlier, this was not a woman that was callous to the loss of her child, but she was obviously in distress. Elisha sees this, and he allows her to approach him, even if it breaks with the cultural etiquette of the day. And Elijah makes clear he has no idea what's going on. He's received no special revelation, no insider information. God has not given him a heads up. But what he does see is a woman, an individual who is in need. And so she starts to ask him this question, did I not say, do not deceive me? She thinks she has been lied to. And it's then that Elijah comes to the realization that her son has died. Notice how he acts here. Just as the woman acted urgently in her faith, Elijah moves in urgency here. He takes his staff, hands it to a servant, sends him on, and both the woman and Elijah head on after the servant. And as they're heading on, the servant returns, and he is telling Elisha and the woman, the child is not awakened. This child is dead. Like, there is no possibility. He may still be alive. He is dead. There is no pulse. There is no heartbeat. He is dead. There is no hope from a worldly standard here. And what we're told is that Elijah then enters the house with the servant. He shuts the door. And even after trying the staff on his face, it's clear Elijah's not quite sure what to do. So in that moment, we find Elijah desperately praying to the Lord for him to move. How many times when we are in moments like this, maybe not necessarily a Shudamite woman situation, but when we are in desperate moments, desperate situations, do we exhaust every other option before we desperately seek the Lord? How many times do I check every other worldly answer in box before I finally say, okay, let me see if prayer works. But notice here, the woman made God a priority in finding a solution to the situation. Elisha desperately seeks urgently the hand of the Lord, the power of the Lord to move. And what happens here is that Elijah stretches himself out upon the boy. One of the more unique scenes that we see here. And in a world where kings and military commanders and armies have brought death, we find the man of God bringing life and breathing life into the boy here. And the boy becomes physically resurrected. And he calls the woman in and he says, pick up your son. And she falls down in worship. And they go on about their way. So what does all this mean? How does faith know that we can, how we can live? How, how does that even begin to play out? Well, the woman or Elijah at the beginning of the story never had any inclination that this would happen, even when she was blessed with a son. But what she did know was that there was a God who could handle even the worst of circumstances that she faced. And so maybe she didn't know the details, but she knew the one who knew the details. And so as she approaches Elijah, she approaches him with confidence that this is not the end of the story. 
that physical death is not a dead end, but really it's just a doorway. And so what we find here is this, that God who raises the dead, both physically and spiritually, is the God who can handle whatever mess is in our lives. He can handle the valleys. And understand this, this story here, as miraculous as it is, is but a glimpse of the resurrection of Jesus that is coming. It's pointing forward to the Jesus who is the better Elijah. Elijah here has to perform all sorts of things, laying upon the child, eyes upon eyes, hands upon hands, and doing all these things. Notice, if you ever get a chance, turn to Luke 7. When there's a dead child, Jesus merely speaks a word and the child gets up. Why? Because Jesus is the better Elijah, who can not only conquer physical death as we see here, but he conquers our spiritual death that is so daunting in our lives. It is only through the cross and the empty tomb that we know this, that we have hope beyond death, that death will not be the end for us, but rather just that doorway. So if you're sitting in here and you do not know Jesus, here's the reality of it. Death in your life cannot be overcome. There's nothing you will find in yourself today, tomorrow, no help tactic No self-help, no solution that will ever solve that for you. And that's one of the most depressing things that we can say today. But there is hope because you can turn to Jesus today, the one who handles death, who handles the grave, who handles our sin problem, and he invites you in today to find that death doesn't have to be the end, but rather the doorway into life and eternity with him forever. So that's the solution here for you today, that you would turn from yourself and turn to him. I would love nothing more than to have that conversation with you down front after the service at some point this week to tell you about that Jesus who is the better Elijah and handles far more than just the physical death that hangs over us. If you're a believer here today, understand this. There are some application points for you. Number one, death should not paralyze you. And in a world filled with death, it is very tempting to just sit down and almost want to give up when it's near and dear to us, when it hits home. But understand this, just like the woman, she saw death as not the end, but just the next point in the story. That she was going to go urgently to seek God to see what he would do about it. You may be facing death of a loved one right now, and maybe it's even in your own life, or maybe it's a friend or whatever it may be. And the call for you, if you're a person of faith, if you have trusted in Jesus, is simply this. That you would view death not as the end, but as an opportunity for God to move in amazing ways. It's not a guarantee that he'll resurrect the person in terms of physically in the immediate moment. But what it is, is it's a guarantee that God can use even the most tragic of circumstances to draw people to him here today. Second point of application is this. It's a question, really, do we seek God as urgently as the Shunammite woman? Oftentimes we get distracted. Oftentimes we search worldly means and worldly answers. But at the end of the day, the woman makes clear that it is God and God alone who has the answers to what we need. Are we relentless in our pursuit of God? The woman's faith is on display here. The woman's relentless pursuit of God is on display here. And it's a call to the followers of Jesus to relentlessly pursue God. Why? Because he tells us in the New Testament to ask, seek, and knock, and it will be given. That God desires to meet the hurting individuals wherever they are with the compassion that only he can show through Jesus. Are we relentlessly pursuing him to move? Are we seeking him urgently? Are we showing the faith of the Shunammite woman? Let's pray.
Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you're a God who meets us right where we are. And I know for people in this room, that means right where we are may be places of hurting, places of hopelessness, places of despair, places where we are, even this morning, confronted with the reality of death. God, if there is a person in here who does not know you, I pray that you would bring them to the reality that you can conquer death. You have conquered death. And you offer us life and life abundantly through Jesus. God, I pray that that would be the move for that person today. I pray for those of us who do know you, that we would view death not as the end, that it would not paralyze us, but that we would see it as an opportunity for your power to be shown, for your glory to be shown, for you to be made much of, even in the most tragic of circumstances. Knowing that there is a day coming when there is no more death, there are no more tears, there is no more sickness. But until that day, Lord, I pray that we would urgently seek you in faith. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.